Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. It's go time in the Connecticut General Assembly, where dozens of bills need to be voted out of committee by the end of the month. Today we talk to House Majority Leader, Representative Jason Rojas, about his priorities this session. What questions do you have for him? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Representative Rojas has been a state legislator since 2009, and in January he became House Majority Leader. He's the first person of color to hold this leadership role in the Connecticut General Assembly. Representative Rojas, welcome to where we live. Uh, Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. And he's joining us today via Zoom. I mentioned you are House Majority Leader. We had House Speaker Ritter on uh, several weeks ago. We do talk to lawmakers from time to time. But for listeners who don't follow the the inner workings of the General Assembly very closely, explain your role as House Majority Leader. Sure. So I'm a state representative, just like any of my other 151 colleagues in the House representing the same number of people. Um, but elected by my colleagues in the House Democratic Caucus to help lead the caucus along with Speaker Ritter. Um, In my role specifically, it's my job uh, with a team of deputy majority leaders to screen all the legislation that comes out of all the committees up at the Capitol. So in any given week, we might have 150 bills to review, 40 bills to review, 50 bills to review. We review them as a team. Um, And then we actually, our Republican colleagues go through a similar process on their side. And then we get together to negotiate and determine whether legislation should go directly to the floor of the House for final action or whether it needs to go to another committee of cognizance that might have, uh, you know, coverage of of something that's included in any particular piece of legislation. And then on the days that we are in the uh, in session over at the Capitol, um, it's my responsibility to manage the floor operation. So ensure, ensure all of our chairs are lined up and ready to take out legislation that we're acting on for the day. Again, work with my Republican colleagues across the aisle to make sure that the day goes smooth. Uh, try to negotiate some deals to move legislation quickly, perhaps limit uh, debate time so that we can get controversial issues done in some amount of time, but all still carry on with much of the other work that we're responsible for doing. That, that's helpful. And Representative Rojas, it sounds like you have a lot of people in your ear <laughs> for this role. Uh, just about everybody who wants to get something out of the House of Representatives at some point in the session will come talk to me for sure. <laughs> Now, you represent parts of East Hartford and Manchester. Uh, Coming up later, we're going to hear from Hartford Current State Capitol reporter Daniela Altamari, who wrote a profile of you earlier this year when you were selected to become House Majority Leader. Uh, In the profile, uh, again, you're the son of parents who moved to Connecticut from Puerto Rico, and uh, you described your upbringing, which included your parents moving from Hartford to East Hartford in a search for better schools as, quote, a great American story. So tell us, uh, again, a little bit about yourself and again how it felt to be named house majority leader you know it was uh, it was a mixture of, of, of humbling honor and then relief because uh, you know majority leader leadership races are often something that take place in a very quiet way it's 
very behind the scenes, um, me engaging with my colleagues and trying to build their support. And the race had actually been going on for two years before I was finally elected. Um, so it was a relief for it to be over, but obviously an honor to be recognized by my colleagues as somebody they look to as a consensus builder, as someone who understands the legislative process, as someone who's had the experience of being a, a, a committee chair of two committees, one of them being the Finance, Revenue, and Bonding Committee, which is obviously has significant input into how the budget is developed and, and overall tax policy. Um, you know, I was a deputy majority leader for uh, former Speaker Majority Leader Arasimowitz, so I, I ran the floor and I think people valued all the experience that I think I bring to the table as well as my personal story um, in terms of coming from a very humbling beginning and having two hardworking parents who kind of are representatives of so many Americans these days um, who, you know, in, uh, English was not their, their first language. Um, so we lived the life in terms of my parents speaking to me in Spanish every day and me going out and operating in the world, uh, in an English speaking world. And I think it, it really set me up for success in who I am today and the work ethic that they exemplified for me and the, and the value of that they placed in education has allowed me to get where I am right now and talking to you as the majority leader. Again, you can join our conversation with Representative Jason Rojas again here on Where We Live, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. As we heard Representative Rojas explain that he helped set the legislative agenda and the session is moving quickly. Uh, so many bills to get to and lots of interesting issues. We'll be talking about all that coming up. Now, again, you represent Manchester and parts of East Hartford, and I wanted to start there. Uh, over the weekend, there were several dozen and demonstrators who gathered to protest issues related to the Manchester Police Department. They were objecting uh, the protesters to treatment of a black hotel guest in town who was arrested after a, a call about a domestic disturbance. They also condemned the fatal shooting of a parole, uh, someone who was off parole, was violating parole, Jose Soto in town last year. Officers mistook Soto's cell phone for a gun after he said he would shoot police. A state's attorney found the officers acted reasonably. Uh, demonstrators also condemned the flying of a thin blue line flag outside the police department. I'm wondering if you can talk about what's happening in uh, Manchester and the relationship between the police department there and people of color in town. Yeah, I mean, I, I think overall in talking with, you know, obviously I've represented the, the, the town for now 12 years on my 13th year, and I've, I've gotten to know a lot of people in the community from all walks of life, and, and in particular people of color who live in Manchester, and, you know, no town, um, you know, is, is, uh, is, is kept away from the issues around racism that we've dealt with as a country, that we've dealt with as a state, and as we dealt with as individual communities. Um, I think part of the challenges is as demographics continually change pretty rapidly. Um, I, does, I think does lead to some shock, some societal shock when things change in your community and they're kind of not what it used to be. Um, I think overall relationships between communities of color in Manchester and Manchester Police Department are largely positive. Um, you know, I think uh, they, 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 they go the extra uh, mile of ensuring that their officers are grounded in the community and grounded in the neighborhood and trying to build relationships with communities of color and communities throughout Manchester. Um, but, you know, there's always going to be instances in, in which tragedies like happened with Mr. Soto or that more recent incident over at the hotel. And I think it speaks to the complexities of what police departments have to deal with on a day to day basis. Um, you know, much like our teachers that are expected to be everything to everyone. Um, and, you know, largely police training has 
has, has been has moved more in the direction of being more paramilitary type of training rather than being peace officers. And I think that's a cultural shift that's taken place over the last 40 to 50 years, which has ramifications for relationships that police departments have with their communities. Um, you know, I think it's important to try to separate, you know, everyone knows a police officer, you know, anybody you talk to knows a police officer and almost every instance they will tell you, you know, that officer is not this, that officer is not that, I know that officer. So I think it's important to look at the systemic issues that address with, uh, that, that exist in criminal justice and try to move away from the more the personal examples. Cause I think that's what makes it really difficult to have a conversation even, even with police. If they feel like they're attacking them and directly uh, uh, directing everything at them, it, it's hard for them to, to, for anybody to wanna have a communication about it. So it's really looking at the systemic issues that agree. and. Uh, no child, you know, no community, unfortunately, can escape some of the challenges that that exist around policing in the modern era. Uh, I mentioned again this fatal shooting of Jose Soto. Again, uh, prosecutor, the state's attorney found that the officers acted reasonably. But when we look at this uh, happening and we think about the police accountability law that passed uh, recently, you know, are there more changes that need to happen in how police are trained? And I understand there were revisions that have uh, been approved out of committee related to that police accountability law. Right. Yeah, I think there's always an opportunity for training, right? But you also have to change policies and practices as well. Um, and, you know, you can, we can write all the laws that we want, but uh, what really matters is how they're implemented in real life. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'm talking with police chiefs on a regular basis that, you know, there is concern out there from officers that they've been hamstrung in their ability to do their job. Um, you know, but we also have to continue to look at the other side of it, um, which has largely been around, you know, police killings. And, you know, even with Mr. Soto, you know, obviously he's of Latino descent, but also there may, there was a mental health issue at play there too. And, and mental health issues cut across race and class. Um, and when there's interactions between individuals who are experiencing a mental health emergency, um, in, in a situation like that, uh, far too often it leads to, to deadly consequences. And I think it's something that, again, officers are, are being trained in, perhaps need to be trained in more in terms of rec uh, recognizing a mental health concerns. There's been a lot of push to have uh, psychologists and social workers uh, go out with police officers on calls. Some people tend to ridicule that. We've seen instances where there's actually been a lot of benefits to including uh, medical uh, providers in situations like that so they can try to de-escalate those situations. I mean, I think for police officers, they're asked to de-escalate a situation um, when they have a gun on their hip or a gun in their hand. Um, and obviously that can lead to really, really terrible outcomes for individuals and for the police officers themselves. So I think there's always an opportunity for improving relationships between um, our public safety officers and the public that they serve and, and recognizing all the nuances that have to go into training our police officers and, and who they're gonna confront on a daily basis. There's been a lot of uh, talk and attention on addressing racial inequities when we think about, again, uh, interactions with police, but that's also something that needs to be addressed in the criminal court system. Today, there's a public hearing on new standards for when state's attorneys decide to release people who've been arrested ahead of trial. Uh, this bill would also shift the state's attorneys to the executive branch that could give the governor some sway over the prosecutor's offices. The state's attorneys are against the proposed rules. They say they need independent. Uh, this is something that was brought forward by the ACLU that's in favor of new transparency requirements, saying they're needed to bring accountability to state prosecutors. So, Representative Rojas, what do you think about this particular bill? Is it something that's needed? Yes. Yeah, I'm sure it is, right? Like, like anything that we're dealing with these days, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid and a lot more awareness paid 
uh, to equity, uh, equity um, and, and racial injustice and racial imbalance in a lot of the public policy systems that we've set up. Um, and you know, the, 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 the state's attorneys are no different, right? They should be evaluated as well. Um, you know, I think often when we think about criminal justice, we think about it in the context of just police and prisons. Um, but in the middle there, there is this judicial process that takes place and a lot of decisions that are being made by very powerful individuals um, that impact people's lives in ways big and small. Um, so I think it's appropriate to evaluate all the different components of our overall criminal justice system. And, you know, this year um, there, there's a, a focus on our state prosecutors. And, you know, I think there needs to be a balance struck here. I don't know. I don't know that it's necessarily a good idea to move uh, the judicial branch other than the executive branch. There's a reason why there's a separation of powers that exists in the way we structured our government. Um, so that our the, the folks who interpret law and execute law have the independence from the from the political whims that that change from year to year and from time to time um, so that they can execute justice in the fairest way possible. Um, they certainly should be held accountable. Um, you know, they are very powerful individuals making determinations about people's lives um, and therefore should be subject to more scrutiny. And if there's an opportunity to shorten the time that they're in office from eight years to four years, um, in, in many ways, that is a different way of holding people accountable. If you're going to be reappointed um, every four years or every five years, as opposed to every eight years, um, it's an opportunity to be uh, evaluate the person's performance, see how they've handled their cases in their judicial districts. Uh, and look at the outcomes that are coming from that. And also determining, you know, the bill also looks at setting a number of strict policies around certain decisions that are made by state prosecutors. Um, you know, it, we, we, for an era there, we had very prescriptive ways in which uh, justice should be meted out, mandatory minimums and federal guiding sentencing guidelines. And um, there were a lot of negative outcomes from that because it didn't uh, give prosecutors the flexibility they need uh, to take into consideration very unique facts that might arise in any given case. Um, so I think it, it's difficult to put strict guidelines in place um, and, and, and not expect you know, and then and, and take away the flexibility from the state prosecutors to make judgments based on the facts that are before them. And, you know, from any given, even if the crime is the same, the circumstances which are involved in that crime are going to be different. And, you know, there's something to be said about giving consideration to that discretion that they have. Again, there's a public hearing on this particular bill uh, today. It's interesting when we when we look at how the legislature operates, uh, the public hearing oftentimes uh, can be one of the first steps to really gauge uh, the impact on the community. And it can take several sessions before you see a bill come into law, uh, Representative Rojas. Do you see that in particular with this particular proposal, that it's going to take some time to, to reach compromise? Absolutely right. Is it going to pass as written? Unlikely. Almost no bill that ever gets proposed and goes through the public hearing process ends up, or something as, as complex as this anyway, um, ends up looking the same by the end of session. Uh, it remains to be seen exactly um, what, what will become of this bill or what components might move forward and what components might uh, need further evaluation. Um, I've gotten out of the business of making predictions given the new role that I have as majority leader because anything I say here will impact decisions down the road. So I try to make, uh, remain as objective as possible and look at both sides of the debate. Um, and once a committee gets uh, a bill gets out of committee, um, we'll have another opportunity to talk more in depth about what should move forward and what shouldn't. Um, and everything is subject to compromise and negotiation. And I suspect that this bill will go through that process. 
Let's talk more about the makeup of the General Assembly. Uh, this week, Patricia Billy Miller was sworn in as a state senator. The former representative won a special election to replace Senator Carlo Leone and to represent Stanford and Darien. She's the first black person and the first woman elected to the Senate from Stanford. And this will be the first time two black women have served in the state Senate at the same time. Of course, Bridgeport Senator Marilyn Moore. How significant do you see uh, her election to this particular district, Representative Rojas? Well, first, I'm just so proud of Representative Senator Billy Miller now, too. She is a classmate of mine. We came in together um, in 2009. So obviously, we've become really good friends over the years, and we've worked on legislation together. We're we're both members of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus. Um, We both represent areas that traditionally haven't been represented by a person of color. Um, So in many ways, you know, her election to the Senate is emblematic of all the progress that we're making, while at the same time, it's also showing, you know, that we haven't gone that far either. Um, so that for the first time in state history, there's, there happens to be two African-American women in the Senate at the same time, uh, or that she's only the fourth uh, uh, Senate woman of color um, in our state's history, just like I'm the first person of color to be in the big six leadership position. So um, there's there's so much to celebrate. Um, you know, I think she's representing a district that is 50-50 of people of color and 50% white, um, far more affluent than I think a lot of uh, districts that people of color tend to represent. Um, but, you know, she's got the experience, uh, you know, she was the uh, chair of the bonding uh, finance uh, bonding subcommittee. So she has a ton of experience. She understands what's going on around the state. And I think she's able to bring a unique perspective to the Senate, um, which, in my opinion, needs some, um, some more perspectives to be shared there. Um, and I think she brings a, a lot of great energy. Um, and, and certainly she brings a lot of confidence to the Senate. It can be pretty intimidating to go up there from time to time. But um, I think they're going to have their hands full with Senator Billy Miller. We're going to talk more with State Representative Jason Rojas after the break. Again, he's House Majority Leader in the Connecticut General Assembly. We'll hit on some more of the controversial issues before lawmakers this session. You can join us, too. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. One of the biggest priorities before state lawmakers will be passing a balanced budget for the next two years. But there are a number of other issues before them, too. Which bills will be passed out of committee and get a floor vote before June when the session ends? Representative Jason Rojas is one of the leaders in the General Assembly who shapes the legislative agenda. He's the House Majority Leader, and he's with us today here on Where We Live. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Representative Rojas, what are your priorities? What do you want to see past this session? Is legalizing cannabis one of them? Uh, yeah, I am a supporter of legalization. Obviously, there's been a, a, a pretty a heavy, a healthy debate um, since the governor proposed uh, his version of it. And of course, our Representative Robin Porter, the Labor Committee, also has another bill that she's proposed that's really focused on equity. Um, I think the number one thing that everybody can agree on is that we want to get this right the first time. Um, we want to ensure that equity um, is represented in any legislation that we passed. And, you know, luckily there are other states who have passed it, 15 other states who have passed legalization of adult use cannabis. Um, and we have an opportunity to learn from their mistakes and, and try to guide us forward in ensuring that we have a, a highly regulated and fair, equitable cannabis, uh, adult use cannabis system for Connecticut. So how far apart 
is the governor's proposal to legalize with more liberal members of the party who want stronger racial justice provisions in this bill? Representative Rojas. Um, you know, I think if you were to go on social media, it would seem to be very, very far. If you get around a table with the individual stakeholders who want to make something happen, we're less far. Um, I think, you know, the governor, by, by his own words and members of administration, are certainly very committed um, to ensuring equity in this. Um, I think it's difficult. I mean, other states who have passed this have struggled with defining exactly what equity means and how it's applied. Um, and I, I don't think Connecticut's any different. And I think that's why they're trying to empower an equity commission that would come together to help determine that for us. Um, so I think, you know, lacking that level of detail at, out of the gate has raised concerns for some individuals, but I don't think there's any less commitment to ensuring that the end result is something that's far more equitable um, than what we're beginning with. So I think, you know, there's a, a great opportunity for us to get something done. Um, you know, there's still a lot of work that we have to do with colleagues. Um, I know in the House and I'm sure in the Senate too, um, who have lots of other questions beyond the equity question about legalizing adult use cannabis. How is it going to impact youth? Should it be 25 years old? Are we, we going to allow home grow? Are we going to expunge all records? Um, you know, it's a really complicated uh, policy that we're considering. Um, but, you know, rarely do you get opportunities like this to introduce an entirely new industry into a state like ours on an issue that's been around for a very long time. So it certainly comes with certain stigmas. Um, but we also know that, that uh, you know, 65% of Connecticut residents support legalization of adult use cannabis. It's certainly something that's happening around the country. Massachusetts to our north has done it. New Jersey to our south has done it. Rhode Island and New York are looking at it. We're going to have to make decisions about whether we want to be an island on this issue or not or have a, a well-regulated system that is in the best interest of the public. Well, we've talked about this issue before on the show. You know, I've, I've talked with uh, lawmakers who say, you know, this is more than just talking about new revenue for our state. And so how would you describe why this is important to you when we, when we, we talk about equity? What does that mean? What do you want to see? Yeah, you know, I think it, it's like so many of the other issues that, that are related to racial justice, right? It's reevaluating the rights are righting the wrongs of the past. And, you know, in this case, it's really the war on drugs and the war on drugs that disproportionately impacted communities of color and low income colors and uh, of color and impacted them in different ways than the way laws are applied in communities that are largely white and wealthy. Um, and I think it, there's a focus on repairing those wrongs and ensuring that as we move forward, um, we're, we're, we're cognizant of, of the, the historical past and its relationship to this issue. Um, so. You know, I think it's ensuring that individuals have access to uh, what is going to be a, what is a rapidly growing um, market. Uh, we've seen explosive growth in, in uh, cannabis jobs um, and revenue that's derived from cannabis um, around the country. And we expect that it'll be no different here in Connecticut. And we want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to participate in that process. Um, you know, we have a robust medical program. Um, obviously, it's, it's, it's dominated by uh, individuals and entities that have a lot of money at their disposal. And what we want to assure is that other people have an opportunity to take part in that economic uh, growth that takes place there. So there's a lot of issues to be worked out. Who would get licenses? How the revenue from adult legalization would be spent? Um, again, how to undo past harm to targeted communities, often people of color, how to expunge uh, marijuana convictions. There's also multiple uh, committees that are looking at this. Is this too complicated to get done this year? No, I don't think it's too complicated, right? This is an issue that's been talked about for a long time. Representative Juan Candelaria from New Haven had bills seven, eight years ago um, before it was uh, politically pop popular or had widespread support throughout the state. So no, I don't think it's too too complex. I think what we need 
to do is, is to tone down the rhetoric around the debate and get the individual stakeholders around the table to work through some of the differences that exist out there. Um, but, you know, we deal with complex issues and in any given session, and this is the long session, right, when we're supposed to deal with these more weighty issues. Um, so I, I don't think it's beyond the capacity of the legislature and the executive branch to get to a deal on this. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. If you have a question for House Majority Leader Representative Jason Rojas, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Courtney's calling in. Courtney, go ahead. Jason, good morning. Courtney Bournes. I've got a question about the progressive income tax. Uh, I, I think there may be two bills, one the Connecticut Voices for Children, another about the coalition uh, that represents labor community and faith-based organizations. My understanding is that Connecticut is probably the wealthiest state in the country or right up at the top. It's also the state with the widest income inequality between our wealthiest citizens and our poorest ones. We have 17 billionaires, I believe, and over 10,000 households that earn, I think, an average of $2.54 million a year. Uh, and the proposals are to increase the marginal rate on the wealthiest 1% or what 5% at the very top. And uh, I, it would bring so much money in, it seems to me, for education, for community needs, to help us balance the budget. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah, Courtney, good to hear from you. Hope you've been well. Um, yes, I'm aware of those. You know, I've supported progressive income tax uh, increases in the past, and, and we have done that during my time in the legislature. The challenge we face right now is in, in 2017, we did put in a number of provisions that would limit our ability to use revenue from certain uh, revenue sources. Um, you know, so the income tax, 66% of the income tax is paid by those of us who pay our taxes through withholding. And then the remaining 33% are individuals who pay through estimates and finals. And a lot of folks who make money off of Wall Street, off of capital gains, pay through estimates and finals. Um, that is a very volatile income tax stream. Um, and so in 2017, we said, and, and because we, we allowed ourselves to use it in budgets, when, when Wall Street was doing really, really well, we would have a great year and have a lot of revenue. When Wall Street was, wasn't doing so well, the following year, that revenue would drop. So it made it really difficult for us to actually have a, a reliable source of income um, from one third of our income tax stream. And it resulted in a lot of volatility. So we responded by putting in a volatility cap in place that says we will only allow ourselves to use $3.15 billion of all the revenue that comes in from estimates and finals. And, and we said we won't allow ourselves to budget for it and it'll automatically go to the rainy day fund. It's part and parcel of why the rainy day fund is almost going to be is over $3 billion this year. Um, and those provisions are in place um, through 2023, I believe it is, if I remember, or 2025. Um, so we're not allowed to use that. So if, if we were to in, increase the tax on the wealthy, it's largely that any revenue that would be derived from that would be subject to the volatility cap and would automatically go to the rainy day fund so that we couldn't even budget for it. And even if we were to raise all that revenue, we have a spending cap in place that wouldn't allow us to spend it. So I think it's largely a timing issue at this point that raising taxes on those individuals just wouldn't really, really be very useful right now because one, we can't use the revenue and two, we can't even spend it. Do you think that uh, when there is talk of raising taxes on the state's wealthiest residents, do you believe uh, the the narrative that it drives the wealthy from our state and businesses? Yes and no, right? I mean, I think there are some individuals for whom it will impact and there are some that it won't, right? Um, you know, when we talk about a billionaire leaving, right, that's a lot of millionaires who pay income tax. So there, there is a hit um, to the state's budget. When I was chair of the Finance Committee, we would often get briefings 
uh, on you know taxpayers and we would often get a briefing on the top 100 taxpayers because they pay such a disproportionate amount of income tax that we paid attention to the top 100 taxpayers because if one of them left there would be an impact on the budget right so it's not about them leaving in mass in some situations it's about one two or three individuals leaving and resulting in a negative uh, impact on the state budget so it's something that we have to be sensitive to am i do i think they're going to flee the state in mass probably not um, you know, there's a lot of things that are keeping them here. I'm, I'm sure not every millionaire minds paying a little bit more in income tax too. I don't make the assumption that all of them hate these kind of ideas. Um, so it's a mixed bag, like anything that we deal with at the Capitol. But the governor seems to have a, a pretty uh, strict mindset on this, Representative Rojas. He does, right. You know, I, I think he takes the same position that he's concerned about capital leaving. Capital is more mobile than it's ever been. It doesn't take much for a wealthy person or a business owner to set up shop in a more tax-friendly state and operate their business from there and, and come back to Connecticut uh, during the spring and summer when it's, uh, you know, it's less humid than it is in Texas or Florida. Uh, and I think he's just sensitive to those issues. And I think, you know, he comes from Greenwich. He's a, a wealthy businessman as well. And I think Certainly, uh, he's probably knows a lot of the folks who would be impacted by these tax proposals, and they're probably telling him and giving him information that some of us who don't have those relationships uh, get to hear. Again, you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live if you have a question for House Majority Leader Representative Jason Rojas. Alyssa's calling in from Hartford. Alyssa, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Uh, congratulations, Majority Leader Rojas. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Your promotion. You, uh, but your day job, that's, that's my concern. You work for Trinity College, an institution that's pretty much walled or gated itself off uh, and from the community, and it's really not participated in the last several years in making the neighborhood area around it a more vibrant or safe one, contrary to you know, what other colleges have done in, in similar urban settings. So my question is, does your day job conflict with the urban legislative interests of the city of Hartford? I appreciate any answer. Sure. No, not at all, actually. I have, I, I started my job at Trinity as a director of community relations, where I spent every day trying to find ways to engage in the community. And I served on the the board of Southside Institutions Neighborhood Alliance, which is a 40-year partnership with Hartford Healthcare and CCMC, where we've de redeveloped over 150 houses in the community. I work with the Trinfo Cafe, which is an internet cafe that um, has 15 or 12,000 registered users from the neighborhood who are able to access technology. I've been involved in Dream Camp, um, which is a free summer camp that the college puts on for 250 kids from the city of Hartford that is completely free in a six-week full-day summer program. So. Um, you know, I think we're actually really connected in the community. Um, you know, I know you used the words walls and gates. We're an open campus. Uh, people walk through our campus all the time. Uh, certainly there are some fences uh, around campus and, they're, you know, they're the subject of much debate. Um, but, you know, there's no doubt that, you know, uh, there's always improvements that can be made on our part. Um, but we have a lot of strong uh, relationships with individual groups in the neighborhood, with individual community members in the neighborhood. We have a, a child care center on our campus that's used by both our staff and from people in the community. Um, you know, we give out loans for staff and faculty to buy houses in the city of Hartford. Um, we invest directly financially. We have a boys and girls club that we support financially on campus as well. Hartford Youth Scholars Foundation is on our campus. Uh, you know, inner city lacrosse is on our campus. We have a capital squash program. Um, that is comprised of a lot of kids from Hartford who have the opportunity to be on our campus and learn squash and get academic mentoring from our from our students. So, 
Um, you know, it, like anything, there's room for improvement, but I'm pretty proud of the relationship that Trinity has in the community and the standing that we have with many of our neighbors. I wanted to bring up uh, an issue that seems to be getting a lot of attention, especially this year, and that's looking at housing inequities in our state. Representative Rojas, uh, we know that Connecticut is very segregated. I want you to talk with us about when we think about legislative priorities this session, there are multiple bills looking at uh, housing rights and also changing the way uh, towns zone uh, so that uh, there can be more ability to build multifamily units or apartments. I'm wondering what is that in terms of your priorities? What do you want to see pass and why is this important? Yeah, no, I, well, you know, I think housing policy is so fundamental to so many other policy areas in the state. When you talk about health inequities, when you talk about educational disparities, when you talk about criminal justice, when you talk about poverty, when you talk about economic isolation, it's all tied to housing and how we redevelop our housing. Um, and the state of Connecticut is not unique in this. This is a national issue. Um, in which we've allowed housing policy to really dictate exactly where people can live together and what kind of neighbor you can have. Um, and that, that breaks down along economic lines and, and certainly it breaks down around racial lines. If you, if you look at the makeup of our schools in Connecticut, they are highly segregated. That's not good for students of color. That's not good for white students either, um, you know, because they don't have the opportunity to build deep and sincere and genuine relationships with people as they're young. And when they become adults, we wonder why we continue to have such racial strife in our country and why people seem to lack uh, lack understanding of each other. We live in a highly segregated society. And because we do that, um, our children don't go to schools together. We don't go to the same churches. We don't eat in the same restaurants. We don't enjoy the same parks. And you can't possibly understand someone else's humanity when you've never had a genuine relationship with them and get to know them as a human being or get to know them as your neighbor. And all of that comes from housing policy and where we allow housing to be developed. I um, mean, it's not just a racial justice issue or an economic justice issue. It's a straight up economic issue, uh, particularly if you live down in Fairfield County and you're just a middle class earner. It is you're spending a lot of your money just on housing. Um, and that obviously has ramifications for the rest of the economy. If you don't have disposable income to, to go spend shopping, um, to invest in your child, to invest in yourself, to invest in a vehicle, um, you're limiting economic opportunity and you're limiting economic growth. And that, and even employers have to make decisions about where they want to build jobs if it's too expensive for their workers to live there. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really complicated. Obviously, it's something that uh, lo- at the local level, it's something that's held dearly. Um, but there's really no reason uh, legally and morally why we should allow communities to continue to exclude individuals um, because of a, a fear, perhaps an unfounded fear they have about what that might bring in terms of bringing a, a working class family or a family of color um, into their community. So what proposal is realistic? I mentioned there are several in terms of you know allowing, I think, housing authorities to look outside of uh, particular areas to find uh, apartments or for families or individuals who have been on a wait list, uh, or does it mean that the 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 state looks at having towns uh, change up zoning, think that allowing accessory dwelling units? Are there specifics that you can share with us that you think um, can ha- make some real headway this session? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it runs from the very basic to ensuring that we're training uh, planning and zoning officials who serve at the local level around these issues of affordability and justice and equity. 
Um, there's something to be said about parking minimums, right? When you have, when you require a certain amount of parking spots for a particular size development, it limits the opportunity to develop those things. I mean, it makes it easier to develop um, housing if you don't have all of these restrictions. Obviously, there's been a lot of conversation about ADUs, the accessibility dwelling units. Is that another option to be considered in allowing communities uh, to build a small unit of housing on an existing property, either attached or detached? Um, to provide housing to a, a young person, to a couple, to an elderly person, right, or just to a family um, as a way to try to provide more supply um, to decrease the overall cost of it. Um, you, know, you know, part of the challenge we have here is we, we don't allow a lot of multifamily housing to be developed. And not just, you know, we're not talking about, you know, 300 unit apartment towers. I think when people hear affordable housing, they have visions of what we were doing in the 1950s and 60s, where we were warehousing low income people in these high rise structures. We're now talking about four and five unit type of structures, even 20 unit type of developments that allow uh, for greater density, um, which decreases the overall cost of a unit and what can be offered out there to the public. Um, you know, but certainly uh, the 8-2 is the Zoning Enabling Act, right? There's references in there that zoning officials can take into the, the make of the character of their community, um, which obviously, leave, you know, something as vague as that is subject to interpretation, depending on where you sit. Um, and, and, you know, let's not kid ourselves that there is a racial component to decisions being made around housing zoning. The, the history shows it, right? Mm. Um, and we have to account for that and we have to ensure that we're not allowing for some things like that. There's Supreme Court law, there's federal law. Right. And of course, there's the moral, uh, the moral questions at play here in terms of people keeping people separated and the ramifications it has for the polarized country that we live in today, because I think a lot of what we're seeing in that polarization ha happens to come down to uh, overall racial segregation and not knowing people. And Representative Rojas, meanwhile, isn't there a, a fair housing complaint against the, the state of Connecticut related to uh, zoning? And, and I'm mean, wondering if is the legislature going to wait until uh, that is uh, ruled on or is it time to actually take some proactive action to make uh, these uh, conditions, I mean, make it more fair for people to, to live around the state and not be secluded and segregated in particular communities? No, I don't think we should wait. I think we should con continue to work with all stakeholders and that includes our local officials and the Connecticut Conference and municipalities is on board with some of these proposals. So they've done a lot of difficult work at their end and working with their mayors uh, to try to make, bring about some of these changes. Um, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric being used out there that it's a state takeover, it's a state this, it's a force that. You know, that is all largely political rhetoric. Certainly these are difficult decisions and they require change on the part of a lot of people. Um, but that's very different than saying the state is taking over something. That's not what's happening. What we want to do is empower our local officials, but also hold them accountable on a lot of the on a, on a lot of the decisions that they make. I mean, there are some, there are at least 25 communities that don't even allow multifamily housing to be developed. But then you have other communities that require two acres and three acres and four acres for a single family home. Um, those are all the type of things that are limiting the supply and increasing the cost of housing for everybody, regardless of what walk of life you come from. I can, he I can hear the passion in your voice. So this is something you definitely want to act on this session. It certainly is. Absolutely. I'm committed to that. And I'm committed to working with all stakeholders, especially those who are opposed at the moment um, on getting to something to move our state forward. I don't want to run out of time without asking you, what's going on with sports betting in Connecticut? It seemed that there might have been a deal, but actually the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation was not on board. Uh, and so this is something that's, again, the governor is negotiating. Uh, but I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, why do we need sports betting and this expanded gambling in our state? Yeah, I would say there still is a deal, right? And I think um, 
once we get past the emotion of the last couple of weeks, some um, in which you know certain parties in that uh, debate uh, were offended by the actions of another, I think we can work through those things. I think everybody's committed to getting a regulated sports betting uh, system set up in Connecticut. Obviously, states were allowed, uh, I forget what year the court case was, maybe three years ago now, two years ago now, um, that allows sports betting to take place. Um, and it's something, again, it's one of those things where it's, you know, not an absolute necessity. We don't need sports betting, right? But we also, we do know that it's taking place. It's taking place in the black market. Um, and what we're trying to do is develop a regulated system so people can participate in a process legally. And, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing to be said about earning a little bit of revenue off of that as well. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, they're off on the tax rate on, on, a, on a particular issue on iGaming. And, you know, somebody's coming in at 20, uh, 20%, one of the parties wants 18%. Um, I think it's something that can be overcome, um, and I think it will be. How is it a deal if the Mohegans and the governor's office are on the same track, but the Pequots are, say that there's still uh, more negotiating that needs to take place? Don't they need both tribes to agree to this, Representative Rojas? They do, right. So we got another three more months to figure that out, <laughs> right? So at the moment, we have one, uh, there's three parties, uh, two of the parties are in agreement and, and one isn't. Um, but, you know, we had an opportunity to speak with uh, Chairman Butler um, from the Pequots just last night, actually. And, um, you know, they're, they're working through the pain, I think, that they experienced over what happened um, you know, last week with the announcement of this deal and, and them being feel, feeling left out of it, but also negotiating in a very public way when there's something as personal as this is to both the tribes. We've run out of time. We hope to have you back. We didn't even talk about the budget, but there's um, some important deadlines coming up. We hope to have you back soon so you can talk more about um, how lawmakers are going to reach the communities and meet the needs of so many. Thank you, Representative Jason Rojas, again, the House Majority Leader of the Connecticut General Assembly. We appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to coming back again. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Coming up after the break, some context from Hartford Current politics reporter Daniela Altamari. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from Representative Jason Rojas. He's House Majority Leader in the Connecticut General Assembly. For more analysis on what he shared, joining us now on Zoom, Daniela Altamari, politics reporter for the Hartford Current. Hi, Daniela. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Talking with Representative Rojas, there's a lot of important issues before the legislature. How are they going to get this all done? The clock is ticking. Oh, the clock is ticking. Um, you know, it's early March and uh, the session ends in early June and uh, it, there's a huge agenda. We're all still working remotely on Zoom. The Capitol building is actually closed, uh, which adds another layer of complexity to everything. Uh, it's always a mad scramble, um, but this year perhaps even more so given the pandemic constraints. He seemed uh, pretty adamant that this is going to be the year for, for cannabis. What, what are you hearing? Yeah, um, well, <laughs> you know, perhaps um, we won't know till it's all over. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of questions still about the various proposals. I, I was struck by just, you know, what an interesting conversation it was that you had with him and how um, racial justice issues are really threaded through so many of these uh, issues that they're dealing with this year at the Capitol. Obviously, cannabis, it's, you know, right front and center. 
um, but you've got you know tax issues and uh, housing issues and criminal justice issues and so many um, you know police uh, reform issues. So, so many of the things that are going to be dealt with this session um, are uh, interwoven with with that uh, that piece of it, and uh, so it's really interesting to see how they kind of all fit together. We ran out of time. We weren't able to talk about the budget again. This is a big uh, one of the biggest uh, jobs that they have is to pass a balanced two year budget. Uh, do you get the impression that there is a agreement and the fact that we've got more federal money coming in? This is actually going to make it easy on lawmakers this time around? Yeah, more federal money coming in and uh, very healthy, you know, um, with the stock market doing as well as it is and, and knowing that uh, how dependent Connecticut's budget is on on the market, uh, given as as Representative Rojas pointed out, those uh, small number of very high tax, uh, very high earners uh, who contribute so much to the tax base, uh, that takes a lot of the pressure off. But there are also huge costs, as we heard the other day from OPM Secretary uh, Melissa McCaw, you know, the, the cost of the pandemic, the amount of money spent on testing and so many other things. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how how those two sort of uh, currents balance out. You've been covering a lot of the, uh, I guess, more hot button issues, uh, public hearings where there's a lot of emotion tied to, again, proposals that have uh, profound impacts on people's lives. I'm wondering if you can talk about, again, like in other sessions, the aid and dying bill that has been endorsed by the Public Health Committee. Talk a little bit again more about what this bill is and what you're hearing in terms of it moving forward. Yeah, that's a really interesting one because it's incredibly complex uh, in a nutshell uh, to, to simplify it um, because we don't have time to get into all the uh, complexities. But, uh, you know, what it would essentially do is make it legal for somebody, uh, certain people um, who are terminally ill and have less than six months to live to obtain a prescription for a lethal dose of medication to end their lives from a physician. Um, currently, that's not allowed in Connecticut, though it is in, in many other states. I think it's something like 20 or 25 percent of the U.S. population lives in places where that would be legal, but it is not legal in Connecticut. This is a proposal that has been kicking around for, for years, really over a decade. Um, and uh, it is extremely emotional on all sides of, of the issue. It has never um, gotten a vote in the in either chamber of the of the General Assembly, and it's never even uh, been voted out of committee until this year. Um, now, opponents are saying, uh, and those opponents include, you know, everyone from uh, the Catholic Church to um, disability rights advocates to, uh, you know, just people who think this is this is morally wrong. Um, they say that um, this is not the year. Again, you know, referring back to what we were just discussing, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and we are everything is being done remotely, which adds, you know, another another layer to the already sort of complex legislative process. They're saying this is not the year to do this. Um, supporters are saying this is absolutely the year to do this. This has been discussed many, many times in the past. It's been vetted. Um, and now is the time and the public uh, wants this. So that, that's in their view. So um, it's a incredibly complicated issue. Where it goes from here, I don't know because I don't have a crystal ball. Um, so it's tough to see what uh, the next uh, two, two and a half months or so or two months will, will bring, um, whether this does get a vote in either chamber of the legislature or whether it dies at the committee level remains to be seen.
Getting back to Representative Rojas, uh, he's someone, again, from the very start, talking about um, speaking to colleagues from both sides of the aisle. Uh, I'm wondering when we hear uh, you know, Democratic leaders talking about bipartisanship, you know, what's the real deal? Is there work that's being done to, to bring both parties together on these proposals or the Democrats uh, have their agenda and that's what's moving forward? You know, it's tough to say because um, I don't even know if we could say, you know, the Democrats as a as a group, because within that group of Democrats, there are folks like Representative Rojas, who's sort of a mainstream, you know, probably a mainstream liberal Democrat, if you were to characterize him anyway. And then there's the Progressive Caucus and the very liberal branch of the Democratic Party, which is really agitating for some big changes that um, could put them at odds with, uh, with Governor Lamont um, on some issues, such as taxes, we know. Um, so it's, you know, the, the typical breakdown of, of, you know, Republicans versus Democrats, it's a little more complicated in Connecticut because uh, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party does have a lot of clout and there are progressive lawmakers, leaders uh, in that wing who are certainly pushing for things that might put them at odds with the governor. I think, uh, as discussed earlier, um, on the cannabis legalization, you know, Representative Robin Porter and other leaders of the of the progressive wing have a very sort of different view of how that should um, unfold than than perhaps uh, other, you know, sort of more centrist Democrats. So it's uh, it's the political landscape here is is complicated and and is difficult to sort sort of just boil down between. Republicans and Democrats, because there's a lot of diversity within that Democratic caucus. On the Republican side, perhaps a little bit less so, there is the conservative caucus, which is more to the right than, you know, some of the uh, other members of the party. But um, there seems to be perhaps a little bit more agreement on some hot button issues like uh, the vaccine mandate um, and, you know, some of the other things, certainly on the budget, uh, there seems to be much more common ground, perhaps, among the Republicans. Well, thank you, Daniela Altamari. Our time was short, but you do great work. We'll be tweeting out some links to some of your uh, reporting about so many issues before the legislature. We'll see what uh, passes in just a few months. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Again, Daniela Altamari is Hartford Current's politics reporter. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. On the phones today, Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Be back tomorrow.